Thank you very much for leading us in worship today. Thank you for your prayers, Mike. Co-family, what a day of celebration. Amen. We, uh, we celebrate with you. We're so excited that Zach has become a, an official part of, the again, the worldwide church of God. A billion strong. A billion and one. So we're excited and so so nice to have your dad here, Dr. Ko. This morning I want to remind you ever so slightly, ever so briefly, about what we've been talking about lately. We've been kind of talking about anchor principles of what Grace Point is founded on. Um, that the grace of God given to the church, given to the individual, given to you, given to me, is, is given not as an umbrella just for us, but it's given as an umbrella and an infilling so that we might have someone else join us under the umbrella. You ever been caught out in the rain? Isn't it great if there's someone nearby who will draw you under their umbrella and help protect you from the rain? Well, one of the things about being a part of Grace Point is that you get to point at grace. You get to be a grace pointer next. You get to be the one who's saying, hey, come, find grace. I know where it is. It's in Christ. It's in Jesus. And that as we discover this thing growing inside of us, as we experience it, we are called to learn to be merciful in a world where mercilessness is the norm. And that those are some founding principles of who we are. And who the church is around the world. Those billion people are called to live under the umbrella of grace and get as many others gathered in there as they can. To be those who help fill the kingdom with those who have been covered by His grace, washed in His blood, and waiting for the resurrection. Today I want to take you to one more thing, one more piece of that. It is true of God that He meets us wherever our heart turns open to Him. No matter where that is, and no matter for what reason, I've told you my story. I started going to church because I was interested in a young lady at the church. And I stayed in the church for that reason. And God took me there. He accepted that entrance into relationship. Even though it was not primarily focused on Him. And the pastor of the church began to speak into my life. The Sabbath school teachers, the discipleship classes, te- class teachers started speaking into my life. And it began to change who I was began to change my outlook on the world. It began to make me recognize things that I didn't know before. Things that I had not considered before. And slowly over time, he took that little bit of attention I gave him and he drew it to my full attention. And then, he called me into baptism myself and into following him resistantly in this place where I find myself today, in pulpits and ministry, and in pointing others to His grace. Today I want to talk about the fact that God meets you 
where you are. I want to look at it in three familiar stories. They're in Matthew chapter 9. If you brought your Bible with you, you'll find Matthew about two-thirds of the way through the book. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. God is not waiting for you to get your stuff together to show up at His house. He's not waiting for you to have your things figured out before He comes and speaks with you or enters into relationship with you. In fact, He'll take you in desperation. He'll take you in ignorance. And He'll take you even if you are completely on a different track. Because His goal is to come into relationship with you and get you pointed in a direction that will bless Him and expand the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 9, the title in my Bible above verse 18 is A Girl Restored to Life and a Woman Healed. A girl restored to life and a woman healed. You're familiar with the stories? Does that immediately start to ring a bell to you? We know about a girl, a young woman. We, we know only that Jesus calls her Talitha, which just means little girl. We know about another woman who's in the middle of this story. She's kind of caught in the midst of this story, almost as a bypassed character. Jesus is in a place. He's on a way. He's got a direction. His day is going in a certain way. Steps are being followed to get to the destination he's headed for. And... This woman breaks in and interrupts it. All we know about her, the, the biblical name for her, the, even the thing we say about her when we want to describe her to someone, we say it's the woman with the issue of blood. We don't have a name for her. We have a name for her problem. This woman is known by her problem. How would you like to be known by your problem? I am not in favor of that. I'd like to stick with Walt. Thank you very much. But she's known by her problem to us. And the last one we, don't, we overlook a lot. The last pair, it's a pair of twin blind men. We don't know that they're twins, but they're both blind, and that's their shared association. And they just barge right into the house with Jesus. We'll get to them at the end of the story. But here it is in Matthew chapter 18. Hopefully you've been able to get to the Wi-Fi and get your phone there now if you're ready to go. 18, Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. We know this guy's name. We know a lot about this guy's. Between, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us his name is Jairus. They tell us, in fact, that he's the ruler of the synagogue. Now, that, that made a little, may need a little explanation in our context. The ruler of the synagogue is the guy who's in charge of all things that take place in the synagogue. He's not the rabbi. He is the guy who makes sure the place is in good repair. He, you know, if the lawn needs mowing, it gets mowed because he makes sure it gets mowed. He does it himself or he gets someone else to do it. He probably gets someone else to do it. He is also the guy who is deciding who gets to speak in the synagogue. So if the local rabbi is not present, this is the guy who decides that someone else can speak. And we know that Jesus has spoken in this synagogue. So he's aware of Jesus. He is also responsible if the wrong person speaks. And Jesus has become persona non grata, so he has probably already gotten some blows on his back, figuratively, for having let Jesus speak in that synagogue. So this is not a natural ally of Jesus. This is a guy who might actually be uh, moving toward the resistance side, the enemy of Christ side, but today he's desperate. He's desperate. He doesn't really come here as the ruler of the synagogue. And Matthew kind of gives us the sense 
Matthew doesn't tell us who he is or that he's the ruler of the synagogue. Matthew just wants us to know that he's a desperate father at this moment. He comes to see Jesus because he's out of other options. He comes to see Jesus because his daughter has been sick. The sickness has progressed. Doctors have not been able to resolve this. And she's about to die. In fact, the scriptural picture here is that the people have begun to gather at his house to begin the mourning process for the inevitable death that's coming. Wow. Like vultures flying over a carcass, people have begun to arrive at the house to practice their trade. They're professional mourners. And they've arrived at the house. When these people show up at your house, the last click of the clock is soon for you. It is at that point when there's nothing left that he turns to Jesus. Desperation is the only reason he's here. You can see the desperation in his activity. My, my Bible, the New King James Version, says that he worshipped Jesus. Your Bibles, if they're newer, will say he fell down at the feet of Jesus. He fell down at the feet of Jesus. This is a man of honor. He has a status to maintain. He has a certain role in this community. And this guy's fallen down at the feet of Jesus on his face. This is not, I bow on my knees. This is full on down to the ground your forehead hits the ground. Your hands are on the ground. You're in front of Jesus in, the, in prostrate fashion. And he says, I need your help. When your enemy is desperate and they come to your door, how do you respond? If you want to know what Jesus teaches, watch what Jesus does, Right? If you want to know what Jesus teaches, watch how Jesus practices. Because the practices of Jesus elucidate that teaching and they illustrate it for us as we walk along on our own. The exact representation of God in human flesh responds to this man. And this is how he responds. Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. Please come to my house. My daughter is sick. To the point of death, she's almost dead. Could you please come lay your hands on her? He's got a plan for Jesus. Lay your hands on her and heal her so that this tragedy doesn't come into my house. And Jesus just gets up and goes. There's no debate. Jesus doesn't say, why are you coming now? Why didn't you come before when she was just a little sick? I could have helped before she suffered all this time. There's a lot of reasons for him to chastise this man. He doesn't. He just gets up and goes. When you're desperate, do you want to be reminded about how stupid you've been to get to this point? No. Usually by the time we get to desperate, we've been stupid several times. It's a trail of stupid that leads to desperate most of the time. And the man doesn't get that from Jesus. He doesn't say, well... Now you come. He just gets up and goes. If you want to know what Jesus teaches, watch what Jesus does. He just gets up and he goes. Verse 20, and suddenly 
So now he and the disciples have begun to go toward this man's house. A crowd is gathered. They're following. This crowd is oozing its way through the streets. They're not big streets. They're narrow streets in Capernaum. They're streets for little carts, not for big cars. And as this thing is moving, this group is moving through like some kind of, I don't know, some amoeba squishing its way through your blood vessels, some virus crawling through your, uh, your, cell, your cellular structure. As he is in, in this crowd is working its way through the town, virus too soon. Suddenly a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she had said to herself, if only I might touch his garment, I shall be made well. A woman. Strike one. A woman is not to touch a man in public, period, ever. Whether she's married to him or not. She's not supposed to touch, period. Behind closed doors in your own home. Some of you are breaking the rules right now. I believe Karen is currently holding Scott's hand. She comes suddenly out of the crowd and she comes toward Jesus. But the Bible says an important thing. It's translated here. But she said to herself. You ever have those conversations in your head? Other translations, if you have another translation, it may say, and she thought. She thought, she considered, she said to herself. In fact, this is in the, in, in the, uh, the language it should, should say she has been saying and is saying to herself. This is a thought she's been carrying for a while. She's looking for an opportunity to exercise what she's been thinking. Twelve years she's been sick. She, too, is in a situation where she's a mess. She's desperate. She has no other options. She's just coming to Jesus because she thinks this might help. She's breaking the rules to be there. She's unclean because of this issue of blood. The Bible says that, what, that this is a this situation that will keep her unclean until it stops. So for, uh, for 12 years, over a decade, she has been unclean. Everything she touches, anyone she touches, everywhere she sits, everywhere she sleeps, is unclean. Because of the issue of blood, if it, it, those of you who are microbiology uh, class, remember your microbiology classes, you know why, you know there's some issues here. Especially in a time when you don't have antibiotics, you don't have uh, sanitization the way we would do. So we don't, don't blame Moses and Deuteronomy for giving us this rule. It probably helped save some lives, but it still makes her life pretty miserable. She's not supposed to be out in a crowd like this. She's not supposed to be around people. If she touches, anyone she touches is unclean until dark, no matter how incidental the touch. Man, have we been practicing that for a couple of years. She is out in this crowd against the permission of her faith. And she sneaks up behind a man who in every way is better than her. He's a man. He's a Jewish man. He's a rabbinic teacher. He is so many steps up the ladder ahead of her, she shouldn't even be in his presence, even if she weren't in the situation. And yet she thinks, she thinks this might work. 
The hem of his garment is not like the bottom of your clothes. It's those, those little blue strings that would hang out at the corner of his garments. They're called tzitzit. They're just a few little pieces of blue strand. They're there to mark his commitment to God, his commitment to the Torah, his commitment to the scriptures, and to remind him every time he puts on his clothes that he is a follower of God. Men don't wear them, ladies. I think you could get away with it today. Here. She just wants to touch those. Just those fringes, the very tip, the very edge. She's looking for a ma- the magical power of that touch. It's, it's like she's going to get a crystal from this crystal store to wear around her neck so that she'll be okay. You see, she's come to the, to the belief somehow there's magic in this guy. And he doesn't stop and rebuke her. He doesn't say, hey, lady, come on. If you want to be healed, come and talk to me about it. Don't pretend like there's some kind of weird magic that comes out for me when you touch my clothes. This is not a superstition, lady. This is a religion. This is faith. This is trusting in God. This isn't trusting in garments. Come on, what's wrong with you? If you want to know what Jesus teaches, watch what Jesus does. The Bible says he stops. If you read the three stories, he has this dramatic stop. The whole group has to pause. When he comes to a halt, all eyes turn to him. Why is he stopping? Certainly the eyes of a desperate father are currently aghast. How could you stop? The errand we are on is extremely important. She could die any minute now. And he stops. And he says, he says, who touched me? Matthew doesn't tell us. But if you read on, Mark's going to tell you, Peter said, Lord, there's a whole crowd around you. Everybody's touching you. Of course it was Peter. He doesn't tell him, be quiet. You talk too much either. He says, I felt it. Power went out from me. There was some magic in his touch. Crazy enough. And she was healed. He turns to her. And this is what he said. Be of good cheer, daughter. A minute ago, she was a woman with an issue of blood who was unclean and shouldn't be out in the crowd and shouldn't be among all these people. And everything she touched was unclean. And she'd been this way for 12 years. She had spent all her money. She's impoverished herself trying to fix this. Jesus singles her out in the crowd, finding her face, meeting her eyes. And he says, daughter. She's gone from an ailment to a relationship. Because that's what Jesus does. We are not known by our brokenness anymore. We are known by our relationship. When you join yourself, as Zach did today, to a relationship with Christ, your name changes. You're called a Christian. A follower of Christ. A person who's identifying truth 
is the path they walk with Jesus. He says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. I know it was a little messed up, and I know you thought there was something magical about touching my clothes. Don't care. It was the best practice of faith you had at the moment. And I'll take it. Because he meets people where they are. Not where he wants them to be someday. He he always wants us to be better off tomorrow than we are today. He wants us to experience the abundance of life following him. He wants to align ourselves. He wants us to align with, with him, to be walking in his steps, to be so often mirroring his steps that people see us and they see him. But he doesn't make us start there. He takes us where we come from. He takes us where we are when he finds us. And he takes us by the hand and he walks us home. He yokes us together with him so that he can pull the heavy portion of the load and we can just be along for the ride. He turns to her and he says, Daughter, my daughter, your faith has healed you. At the moment of this woman's exaltation, a person arrives from the synagogue ruler's house, from Jairus' house, Don't know how far it was. But we do know that the news isn't good. The expectation of this desperate father has come to fruition. It's fruiting in his house right now. His daughter has died. The person comes and says to him, don't bother him any longer. Your daughter's dead. You collect all these pieces from the various readings as it's recounted by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Jesus comes to the ruler's house. And he saw flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. We don't invite flute, flute, <laughs> flute players Somehow fruit prayers was about to come out. Flute players. In the modern world to a situation like this. We don't bring musicians into our mourning. But this was normal in the first century. This is, this is the right thing to do. If you have any means at all. So that the whole neighborhood, the whole community knows your loss. And people have begun to wail as she breathed her last. They began to let out their wailing. I can't can't imagine how heartbroken this father was as he took those final steps toward his house and started picking up the sounds of the wailing and the flutes. You talk about layering discouragement upon discouragement He had to be weeping as Jesus walked him to the house. Jesus turns to those who are weeping and wailing and blowing on their flutes. And Matthew puts it this way. He says to them, make room. 
but this girl is not dead, only sleeping. You know, I think that should be the, the anthem of every believer who has lost someone they know, who has followed Christ to that point. My friend, my loved one, my child, they're not dead. Because when you're dealing with God, dead is not dead. When you're walking with God, this isn't the end of something. It's a, it's a break. He says, this, word, this girl is not dead, just sleeping. And they ridicule them. You know what dead looks like? We do this for a living. We know what we're doing here. What are you, some crazy rabbi from Nazareth? Don't they teach you anything in school in Nazareth? And he puts the crowd out of the house. When the crowd was put outside, it's a nice way to say, he said, get out. The Bible tells us he took Peter, James, and John, the the three closest disciples. I don't know why these three. Maybe because they, they had somehow begun to take in the experience more fully than the others. Maybe he just liked hanging around with those three better than the others. I feel bad for the others. These guys get in on a lot of interesting stuff. But he takes those three into the house and he goes over to the little girl who's lying on the bed. Her face racked with the disease that's taken her. Her body worn by it. She's beginning already to cool down. He takes her by the hand. And he says to her, Talitha, little girl, get up. Her dad didn't come to Jesus until it was so late that she died in the process of waiting. It wasn't a long break. It wasn't a long time. Capernaum's not a small town, but it's not a big town. Walking across town would have taken Jesus a matter of maybe 10 minutes. The guy doesn't show up until there's less than 10 minutes left in his daughter's life. desperation god will take you when you are desperate but you'll save yourself a lot of pain if you get there before that he walks into the house he raises this man's daughter to life he tells them feed her i bet she got the best meal of her life that day i bet they immediately started preparing everything she liked get some food in this girl and let's make it good We have seen a miracle here today. Out of our desperation, God has shown up. And in this moment, when when all we could do was run to Jesus because we had spent all of our other options, He still took us in. He still said, okay, He still followed you home. He still went into your house. He still broke into the rules of the universe and He raised this little girl to life. Because your desperation doesn't separate God from your blessing. He doesn't care why you came. He cares that you came. And his immediate need after he raises this girl back to life is hers. His immediate request to the parents is take care of your daughter. 
It's interesting because he, had, he asks them to invest in her needs now. I know you came because you were desperate, but it's okay with me. I wish you'd come sooner. But your desperation does not disqualify my ability to call you into my house and make you one of my own. And we often stop there, but the next thing the Bible says, my Bible says, is when Jesus departed from there, I might need to wipe my eyes a little bit in order to read much more. Two blind men followed him. He leaves the house of these people. Two blind men follow him. They fall in behind the crowd. They're following Jesus too. They've seen this. Perceived this. Opportunity. Crying out saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Why is it that the blind community seems to use this phrase? He's going to go down to Jericho. Same thing's going to happen there. Son of David. Why son of David? Son of David is the term that Jesus never uses himself, really. It's the term everyone else uses of him. This is the warrior leader, the king that everyone is looking for. Their theology is kind of messed up, these two blind men. Jesus has come to rescue the world through his death, not to destroy the world by his authority and power. Not to kick the Romans out, but to baptize all the Romans he can get. Because Jesus doesn't have enemies. Jesus doesn't have enemies. You can make yourself an enemy of Jesus, but Jesus doesn't become your enemy. We sometimes think that at the end of time, what God is doing when that final destruction happens of all sin, we think God is eliminating his enemies. God doesn't have enemies. To be God's enemy, you would have to be his equal. That isn't happening. God doesn't have enemies, so the Romans are not his enemies. They're just his children that are off in a different direction. It's no different than the Jewish man who didn't come until he was desperate and the woman who thought that there was some magic in Jesus' clothing. If you're a Roman, it doesn't really change anything. You're just one of his kids. These blind men come in and they they use the term for Jesus that would be the conquering hero, destroying the enemies and putting Jerusalem back as the center of the world. Their theology is all messed up. He goes into the house. The crowd following. The blind men are calling out, Son of David, have mercy on us. He just goes in the house. Ignoring them, it seems. Kind of like these guys. Because they go in the house too. You know, if you're blind, it's because God doesn't like you, right? That was what they thought. That's what they'd been taught. If there's some problem with you, if, if you were born in some way not entirely whole, as humanity defines wholeness, it's because God didn't like you or your parents. These guys shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us, go busting right into the house, following the group right behind him. So here's Jesus, his disciples, and two blind guys who won't shut up and won't be turned away. I like that. Their theology is wrong, but their direction is right. You know, he doesn't mind if your theology is wrong. Because believe me, your theology is wrong. 
when you align all of the things you believe with me, your theology would be correct. But until then, <laughs> just kidding, kind of. They come into the house still asking for Jesus' help. Verse 28 says, When he had come into the house, the blind men came in in to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? It's a question of faith, not of theology. I call myself son of man. I prefer to be referred to as son of man. Thank you very much. Um, This whole son of David thing, it's, it's a nice compliment. It's a nice idea. But it's wrong. Could you please call me the son? From now on, when speaking of me, would you and everybody else within my hearing just refer to me as son of man? Thank you very much. Do you guys really have faith to believe in what you're asking for? It's all he wants to know. How much do you trust me really? You come storming into the house. Do you really believe you can get what you're asking for? They said, yes, Lord. If Jesus asks you if you have faith, say, yes, Lord, and help for what I am struggling with. And this is what he said. He touched their eyes. And he said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. So I'm assuming that it was two sets of hands. Right. Let it be done to you. And their eyes were open. And they began to see. What does Jesus leave behind that day? What are, what is what is left in Jesus' trail as he's walked through town that day? He arrived at the seashore, a crowd gathered round him. The, 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 the desperate man comes and asks for help, and Jesus starts to follow him across town toward home. As he follows him across town, a woman interrupts. He heals her, and he leaves a woman restored from being named and being known only by her ailment to becoming a daughter, to being a daughter of God, to being recognized fully as one of his. He leaves a restored life and a happy woman who's going to run off and tell everybody she can find about what Jesus has done. He goes on to the, to the house where he's been beckoned for, arriving after the child is already dead, goes in, pushes out the doubters, walks into the presence, grabs this little girl's hand, says, little girl, get up. He, she does. The parents are left cooking lunch, breakfast, whatever time of the day this is. They're feeding their daughter and Jesus walks out the door with the disciples only to be picked up by a couple of blind men. Goes across town, probably into Peter's house, wanders into Peter's house. These two guys come charging right in with him. By their faith, they are also healed. And you have three people. One, only there because he's desperate. Second, there because she thinks Jesus is magic. Third, fourth, the two blind men. There because they think this is the king they've been waiting for. Theology's wrong. 
Motivation is wrong. This whole magic thing is all messed up. And in every single case, Jesus meets them where they are. Blesses and cares for them. Restores them physically. And calls them back into relationship with God fully. God meets you where you are. God always meets you where you are. None of us qualify. Some of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive, which is a big statement. Some of you have been Christians for a year, two years, ten years. Some even less time than that. But all of us wake up each morning needing to be met where we are because none of us is worthy of the blessing of the relationship He joins Himself to. He joins Himself to us. And we simply start our day by taking His hand and walking along. Listen carefully to these words. There should be no threshold at the door of the church. There is no qualifying climb into church. There is an extremely high goal for everyone who comes through the door. That is Christ-likeness. But there is to be no threshold to trip on getting into the church. And that means when you are out in your neighborhood, there is no threshold to get to you because you are the church. Jesus meets people where they are. Jesus' people do the same. Let's pray. Father God, there are lots of differences between you and us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to tear down the barriers we place between others and you. I pray that you will help us to understand that our challenge, our call, our responsibility is love. And that there should be no threshold to receive our love. And that we should trust you to lift all who find their way to you to Christ's likeness as you wish. Thank you for these all so familiar stories in your word. Thank you that they keep teaching.
day after day. Thank you that in them we discover your character and your heart. Lord, we'd like to be more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. Amen.